So we are in our series on uh, faith that works as we are looking through uh, the book of James. And so today we are in chapter 2. And um, it's clear from last week, chapter 1, that James believes that faith is not a personal thing. Uh, Faith is for sharing and that we share that faith through the good works that are produced because of that faith. And so as we move into chapter 2, we find a huge challenge hits us, like smacks you in the face straight away. As verse 1 says, My brothers and sisters, do not with your acts of favoritism, do you not with your acts of favoritism, really believe in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ? See, if we track back a little, just slightly to what we looked at the end of last week, Um, This is what James is really talking about in verse 27 from last week, where he says, keep oneself unstained by the world. See, the scenario that James is painting here in verses 2 through 4, it really digs in to the heart of a problem that the church were having. And if we're honest, a problem that we still have within the church today. Talking about our prejudice our favoritism towards one person over another person for whatever reason that is. And if we're honest, that's, that's behavior unbecoming a disciple. Okay? Um, if we profess that Jesus Christ is our Lord, then all the people that come through those doors, all the people that we meet out on the streets, they should all be treated equally. But let's think for a moment of some of the reasons why that might not be the case. And let's use James's example that he sets for us of of how we would treat the rich or the poor. Now, maybe, maybe poverty makes us feel uncomfortable. Maybe Maybe we want to be wealthy, and so actually relationships and and reputation, it matters. Maybe uh, maybe we want rich people to come and join us here so that they can help contribute financially to the working of the church. Now, do any of those sound like good reasons to mistreat someone? I would say they don't. Um, I would say they're far from a good reason. Even if poverty makes us feel uncomfortable, and especially when we see it in an extreme, does that mean that we should turn our eyes the other way, uh, cross the street? um, Or should our response be one of compassion? Maybe, Maybe you have a dream to be wealthy and to be successful, And so the association that you make matter, the people you're seen with, actually then impacts that. But should your success be built on earthly terms, or should it be built on kingdom principles? And as for uh, seeking people to join us here at St. John, because they're rich, and they can help us to to keep the church going, to, to support the mission... Well, let's be clear, because it's not our church, it belongs to Jesus. It's not our mission, 
that's Christ's too. We need to be thankful that we get to be part of the family. We need to be thankful that we get to be on mission. And a large part of being on that mission is loving our neighbor. It's not showing favoritism to someone because they are rich, because they are poor, or for any other reason. It's for trying to find out what their need is. See, a rich person might not need a coat to keep them warm outside in the cold, but they do need something. So as you meet them, it's our job to find out what that something is and to help provide it for them. See, we know that everything that we have is a gift from God. We've been blessed in order to be a blessing to others. But that can sometimes twist our thinking. Because sometimes we then see rich people and we think, my goodness, God's really blessed them, hasn't he? But that's not how God works. Not every rich person has been blessed abundantly by God. Because God doesn't promise earthly treasure. God promises what? He promises eternal reward. Okay? And I'm reminded of a, an old friend of mine who's a Salvation Army officer. Um, I used to work, uh, work with him a couple of days a week doing a furniture ministry where we would go and pick up furniture that people didn't want anymore and we'd store it in our warehouse and then families that needed it They'd ring us up and tell us what we needed. We'd go to the warehouse, get that stuff out, and take it over to their house and deliver it. And when anybody spoke to him about wages and income and lifestyle, um, his comment was always along the lines of, well, the pay's not great, but the retirement benefits are out of this world. And that stuck with me because like, that's, that's kind of what James is getting at. He's reminding us of our retirement benefits when we get to verse 5 here. And it says, it says, listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? James isn't talking here about just being kind of poor monetarily. Uh, he's also talking about those who maybe choose more simple values. People who, because of those values that they choose, are despised by the world. Uh, maybe it's by, by choosing human relationships over and above financial gain. It's a great character trait for us all to look to, to try and live into. But it does kind of go against the capitalist idea of making a profit. Maybe if we believe another simple ideal of, of peace being more valuable than power or status. Not many people in the world think that. 
Why don't they think that? Well, because power and status usually leads to what? It used, usually leads to financial wealth. And that's not to say not living by those values or living by those values is a means of getting into heaven. It's not saying all rich people will go to hell and all poor people will go to heaven. Because that's not what scripture teaches us. Because that's decided only by one person, by Christ. And we know, we know that the criteria for that starts with faith. But why then does James talk right here now about the poor as he is doing? Well, I'm thinking it starts really with Jesus' teachings, you know? He's, he's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. He gives us the Beatitudes. And what does he say as one of those? Blessed be the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, simply put, it, it's got a lot to do with acknowledgement. Okay? Those who have little have less qualms in giving it up. Jesus says, come to me. Surrender to me. And so if you haven't got a lot, it's easier to do that. It's easier. But if you've got much, if you're a rich person with, with an abundance in your life, then you're more aware of what you're giving up. See, poor people, uh, people who stick to those simple earthly values, they're aware of their powerlessness. They're aware of any insecurities that they may have. And that leads them to be really aware for their need for salvation. And like I said, the flip side of that is I am I've got, I know what power is, I've acquired for myself, this is what I've earned through my dedication to work and to living the way that I do. And often it's things like that, it's the pride. Pride can inhibit us from having the ability to say, I surrender all. Have the ability to say, all to Jesus, I will give. See, Christ himself, he spoke on this subject in Matthew 19, verse 24. And he said, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And note here, he doesn't say it's impossible. He just says it's hard. And we've already looked at some of those reasons as to why it's hard. We're very fortunate to live in a pretty, in comparison with a lot of the world, a pretty rich country, a pretty rich community. And we all have things that we don't want to give up. We all have things that we don't want to surrender. But that's part of our walk as a disciple is actually learning to give up more each step that we take. Learning to surrender 
all. The more we have, the harder it is to give it away. And so as we move on through chapter, chapter 2 of James, and, and in verse 8, he writes, You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, James has called it the royal law. And presumably that's because it's the law that came out of Jesus' mouth as the second greatest commandment. It's a verse, one of the verses from the Old Testament that really tell us how the early church viewed Jesus. One of those verses that really says, you know, come on. It is clear to us that they treat Jesus as the king. He was royalty. God has established his kingdom through Christ, and they want to live by it, regardless of what the world is doing. That's how we should be viewing the world. That's how we should be approaching things. To live under his rule in his kingdom, declaring him to be Lord, regardless of what the rest of the world is doing. They wanted to, they wanted to live in a way which showed their faith. See, the, the early church... And I'd say again, for us today, it's not to live by showing partiality to the rich. It's not about neglecting the poor. It's not about having a prejudice in any area. Because as we read on in, in verses 9 and 10, but if you show partiality, you commit sin. And are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for it. For all of it. Now let's give thanks, okay? Because we're not under the law anymore. We're under grace, okay? But though we need to hold on to that, we need to remember from last week Yes, we're under grace, but we're saved by grace, which is through faith, which is not a gift of that we've given ourselves. It's a gift that God has given us. And we're called to show that faith through the works that are produced because of it. It's not a time which some people would be thinking when they read James and which other people have commented on. It's not a time to be thinking... Well, I can't keep that one point of the law, so what's the point in trying to keep any of it? That's not what it is. See, because failure means we're a sinner. And let's be all honest. We all fail. We all fall short. And so we are all sinners. That is why we need grace. One thing that we cannot, one thing that we must not do is to think that be, by being under grace... It means that we, we can do whatever we please. Because Paul teaches clearly on this as well. And he says in Romans 6, um, what then are we to say? Should we continue to sin in order, to a, to, to, in order that grace may abound? 
By no means, he says. By no means. How can one who is dead to sin go on living in it? See, we are all lawbreakers. We are all sinners. And that is why we need Christ to come and redeem us. Okay? We have received grace. And grace is not something that you kind of tally up like poker chips. Yeah? I've got more than you. Um, shows how much more of a terrible person I am than you if I've got more than you, if you're going to count it that way. Grace isn't like that. Grace is given freely, but it's given because of our faith, and our faith needs to produce works. And as it produces those works, we're called to live into them. See, we approach the royal throne. We approach Jesus as repentant sinners. And we say, we come repentant. We seek his forgiveness. And there, at that throne, we receive his mercy. And in receiving his mercy, what do we do? We offer to put our faith into practice. To step into a living faith. And to start this journey, maybe afresh. Maybe we took a detour and we need to get back on track. We've got to be very, very careful about how we, how we deal with grace in that way. We've got to be very serious about the way we come at it. And James, he kind of comes in on verse 13 when he writes, For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay? Mercy triumphs over judgment. Where we ourselves show a lack of mercy, what do we do? Well, I think that shows a failure for us in understanding, in appreciation, and, and even, I would say, in acknowledgement of what Christ has done for us. Okay? Let's not do that. Let's not do that. Remembering, faith isn't personal. It is for sharing. And we share it. How? We share it through the good works that are produced because of it. And that's a point which is reinforced by James here in the next verse. Where he goes, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you do not have works? What good is it to have faith and not have works. And that's the crux of the remainder of this chapter. That's kind of what James is getting at throughout. And he repeats himself many times in that same thread. And as I'm stood here, in front of a group of Lutherans, sounding as though I'm attacking this doctrine of faith alone. So I want to spend a little time trying to convince you that that's not what I'm doing. Um, and I want to start with a, a quote from John Piper, who wrote a foreword to a book named Faith Alone, The Doctrine of Justification by Thomas Schreiner. And in it, he says, we are justified by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. And if we look at verse 14, again, 
there we can see that it's very possible that someone who can claim to have faith, but yet that faith seems to be maybe an intellectual asset. Okay? Maybe it's that they can agree with the, the Christian teaching. But this by itself, at best, is an incomplete faith. Okay, if we live it up here and it stays up there, can we really call that faith? See, faith isn't head knowledge. Faith is about a heartfelt response, a heartfelt embrace of Jesus, a surrendering to his kingdom, an acknowledgement of everything that he has done for us and our need for him as a savior. If our lives are not changed by the faith that we claim, if, if our actions are not impacted by, by what we say is in our minds, then what are we doing? Anything other than being false. We're not believing the things that we say we believe. Does that mean that we're not Saved or, or justified by faith? Well, no, it doesn't. Scripture tells us we are. It just means that we need, to, we need to better understand what it means to be justified by faith. Anthony Lane, he tells us that a doctrine is a, a map or a model. It's not a mathematical formula. So what we've got to do is not get hung up on, on simplicity when we look at, at faith alone or any other of our doctrines. They are part of the gospel. They are not the whole gospel. So by faith alone, it means that salvation does not come from looking at ourselves. Okay? It means that it, it's not about our own works and our own righteousness. But it's about looking to Jesus. It's looking to the person and works of Jesus Christ. And James isn't arguing anything different. He doesn't go up against Paul on justification through works. Because even Paul writes, if we see it in, in Galatians 5, 6, for in Christ Jesus, the only thing that counts is faith working through love. Good works will not earn salvation. I don't want anyone to hear that because that's not what I'm trying to say through this whole series. Because salvation is by grace through faith, which is a gift from God. But it is that faith that we are called to share with the world so that others too can get to experience grace. And how do we share it? We share it through the good works that are produced because of it. James goes on to talk about Abraham. And he says Abraham was justified because of his act. Paul takes the same, um, the same man. He takes the same scenario, the same history. And he says Abraham was justified because he believed in God. Okay? James is saying he believed in God, so he acted. They're saying the same thing. This battle which has been created between James and Paul 
by different people, by different theologians, and still exists in some days uh, and some places, is exactly that. It's created. It's, it's fiction. They are not banging heads. They're in agreement. Safe. Okay? We are saved by faith. Yes, we are. True faith results in works. Yes, it does. They're not saying anything different. And another way you might look at it is to say that faith brings salvation, but active obedience demonstrates faith. That's what James means when he says faith without works is dead. Okay, he reminds us in verse 19, he says, demons believe that there is one God. And it brings them to shudder. Now, if faith is belief in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in one God, and that's what's needed for salvation, well, the demons, the demons believe. So does that mean the demons are saved? Well, no, of course it doesn't. Because remember, last week I spoke on that motivation. I spoke on being hearers and doers of the word. And that message carries into this installment of the series two. To quote John Piper again, we are justified by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. So please don't sit idly by. Don't be thinking of yourself as being saved in an inactive way. Because faith is active. Got to live it out. There's a a company in the UK that I, I grew up watching their television commercials called Ron Seal. I don't think it's made it over here to the US. Um, and they'd sell like wood stain. Lots of different versions of wood stain. And they'd put on big letters on the tin what kind of wood stain it was. And so you'd have all their commercials and then you'd have a guy holding up the tin. And let's say, for example, this one is quick drying varnish. Quick drying clear varnish even. They'd even spell it out. Um, and he'd just hold up the tin, and then he'd say to the camera, Ron Seal does exactly what it says on the tin. And that became their catchphrase, their, their, their strap line. And that's our challenge for today. But, but our challenge fitting that is really to live our lives, to be, to be disciples that do exactly what it says in his word. Be disciples, that does exactly what it says in his word. To be truly, truly living out our faith. And that is a faith that is shared through the good works that are produced because of it. Okay? Faith and works go hand in glove. They are not supposed to be competing forces. When we allow them to be competing forces, we allow the enemy to win. Because then we're not disciples that do as it says in the word. That's what we're called to be. Let's keep that challenge. And let's step into living our faith. Let me pray for you. Father, we come today knowing that you 
You have given us everything that we need in Christ Jesus. He is our master. He is our friend. He is our teacher. He is the word made flesh. So as we dwell more on the word, help us live into the faith that we confess. Help it move from our head as we read it to our hearts so we can embrace it. To our lives so we can act out that faith, bringing others to know you and to experience your grace, which we so treasure and value. In Jesus we pray. Amen.